Good morning, everybody. I want to begin today with the unlikely story of this creature. This is Inky that is up on the screen. Inky is an octopus. Inky was injured off the coast of Australia, and a fisherman discovered Inky, could tell that it was injured, and got it to some people who could do something about it. And so Inky spent some time in the New Zealand aquarium, rehabbed, got better, but Inky didn't like captivity all of that much. And so Inky decided to do something about it. Did you know that a 600-pound octopus can fit through the hole the size of a quarter? Well, they didn't put Inky's lid on his kind of aquarium too tight. And so as the children book that was written by a scientist who specialized in octopus, do we have any of those with us today? Are there any particular marine biologists here who that's their subspecialty? Well, uh, she wrote this children book to describe what happened. Inky started to make his way through a small opening in the top of the aquarium, flopped back down onto the ground, crawled on the ground to find a drain hole, shoved his body down through the drain hole, crawled through the drain pipes. One of those pipes eventually found their way out and into the open ocean. So apparently... Inky is in the open ocean. I cannot tell you any more than that because Inky has signed a non-disclosure agreement with Disney because of its next movie that's going to be out about it. So we don't exactly know what Inky's doing now. But isn't that a fantastic story? Don't we love a good escape story? Don't we love the fact that someone is able to overcome insurmountable odds in the face of great dangers or challenges, able to find their way from captivity into freedom? Well, actually, if you read the book of Acts, you realize that it seems to be a kind of a series of different great escapes, different escape stories people trying to put the gospel in confinement, people trying to contain the Holy Spirit, people trying to stop this thing called the church. And none of it will work because it's always finding a way out. So over the next four weeks, a little short series in the time of November before we get ready for the Christmas season, we're going to look at four great escape scenes from the book of Acts. And today we're going to start with Acts chapter 12 and one of the escape scenes of the apostle Peter. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of what? Unleavened bread. That's going to be important later. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the? Passover. Same thing. Unleavened bread and Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. 
And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. And he thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance. A servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. In other words, they thought that Peter had died in prison and that his angel was there. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. What an odd story. What do you make of it? Why is it in the book of Acts? What is it supposed to mean? And, and it's not just an ordinary escape story. It's different than that. Did you notice when it talked about the festival of unleavened bread, which is also the same thing as fest, the festival of Passover, a meal that we will commemorate and celebrate in just a few moments in communion? Was this about the cunning of Peter? Was this about his ability to squeeze through small, tight spaces? Was this about his intellect or his strength or his persistence? No, this is not an escape story. It's a rescue story. And that's a different kind of an escape story altogether. In fact, Peter put it this way. Peter said, he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Passover was about the rescue of God's people. It was not because they were more numerous. It's not because they were better than anybody else. It's not because they were holier or more special. It was about God doing for them what they could not do for themselves, that God had chosen them and God had blessed them to take them from their bondage in Egypt in order to get them into freedom. A rescue story that takes place during a festival of rescue. And don't miss the irony, instead of Israel being the ones being rescued, Israel is now in the role of Egypt. So why is this story in the Bible for us? Why does the book of Acts talk about this? I think it's a reminder that God is still rescuing today. I think that if you're thinking that you're the apostles in that moment of the early church, you're like, yeah, Passover, this is a great season. God showed up dramatically and rescued his people long ago, but is he still doing that today? 
I think the point of the story is that, yes, God is still rescuing his people. It was not something that just happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's happening in our moment, in our time. And if God's primary work in the world is rescue and it's not about our cunning or our intellect, our ability to escape, then what we have to do is to be ready for rescue. What do you need to be doing in order to be ready for rescue according to this story? Pray earnestly, trust deeply, and find your friends. Say those with me. Pray earnestly, trust deeply, and find your friends. First, let's talk about praying earnestly. So here is Peter in jail, and the church, his friends, are gathered together. They are on their knees, and the text says that they are praying earnestly or fervently. It, say, it seems that we're not just called to pray, we're called to pray with passion. We're not just called to pray, we're called to pray with desire. We're not just called to pray, we are called to pray with expectation. We're called to pray with anticipation, with longing. It's not enough to just say the words. There's supposed to be this full throttle desire behind it. That's the way that we're called to pray. And to remind us of that, and you're paying attention in the study of this story, Luke uses the exact same language to describe how the church is praying in this moment, to describe how Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's like, take this cup away from me, not my will, but thy will be done. He is praying earnestly. And the question is, do you and I pray like that? Or do we just kind of go through the motions? There's a true story of a mom. Her name's Monica, and she has a 16-year-old son. And her 16-year-old son is in a period of rebellion. And so they're fighting with one another. There's a clash of values. The son doesn't want to be in the confinement of the rules or the home anymore. And so the son runs away. The son flees. And the mother is left with nothing to be able to do except for to be able to pray for her son. And boy, does she pray. She prays earnestly and fervently. And later, in reflecting back on that season, her son wrote this. And what did she beg of you, my God, with all of those tears, if not that you would prevent me from leaving? But you did not do as she asked you. Instead, in the depth of your wisdom, you granted the wish that was closest to her heart. For she saw that you had granted her far more than she used to ask in her tearful prayers. You brought me to yourself so that I no longer placed any hope in this world, but stood firmly upon the rule of faith, and you turned her sadness into rejoicing, into joy far fuller than her dearest wish, far sweeter and more chaste than any that she had hoped to find. For you see, the 16-year-old boy that Monica was praying for was none other than St. Augustine, and this story took place all the way back in the fourth century. Who knew that the future of the church hinged on a mother's earnest prayers? But they often do. Do not underestimate the power of God working through our fervent prayers. But I also need to be really clear, and some people misunderstand 
just because we pray with anticipation, just because we pray in this way, it is not about manipulating an outcome. Remember, this is still a rescue operation, not an escape. It's not about us. Did you notice at the beginning of the story that James is the first, the son of John, the one who, or the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, the one who had been called just like Peter by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that James is killed by the sword. God is faithful in those moments just as much as he is in the other moments. But we always pray earnestly. To be ready, we pray earnestly. We also, secondly, we trust deeply. What is Peter doing in this story when he gets thrown into prison? Did you notice what he's doing? Gets thrown into jail, and his first reaction to being guarded by 16 guards, chained and stripped naked, Peter's response to that is, I'll take a nap. Is that what you would do in that moment? It's not what I would be doing at that moment. What on earth is Peter doing? What does that mean? Well, I think it means that, you know what, this is the third time Peter's been incarcerated. He's like, this is old hat. God's got this. And, uh, and I think he learned it directly from Jesus. What was Jesus doing when the big storm hit and they're on the Sea of Galilee and it was unlike any squall that these fishermen had ever seen before? What's Jesus doing? He's asleep at the front of the boat. Because Jesus isn't worried, and neither is Peter. True story of a time back in 2005, uh, 2003, excuse me, we had just had our first child, Danica, and uh, we had been in the kind of the, the furnace of that early childhood, paying attention to your first child, every little thing, the incredible vigilance. You're not sleeping well at night, and there's so much to like learn and to try to figure out. Every year, my wife and I had gone, because we lived in the New York City metro area for, for almost a decade, we, we had gone to uh, a New York City Christmas date every year. And we really looked forward to that tradition, and so... Kelly's mom came up, it was close to Christmas, kept Danica for us, said, we'll stay here with Danica, you guys enjoy a night in the city. So we used some points, got a hotel room in Times Square, so excited, we're going to be grown-ups once again, we're going to take showers and live like normal human beings again, we are so excited to go out for a night on the town. We get to the train early, we check in, we, uh, we have an early reservation because we're going to be spontaneous, which we don't do anymore, and we're going to go to Times Square, we're going to get some half price tickets and just go see some random show that we don't know anything about. We eat dinner and we are in bed fast asleep by 8.15. <laughs> Worst Christmas date ever. But we slept so well. Why did we sleep well? Because we knew that Danica was with someone who could take care of her. And we trusted her completely to that care. Universities and businesses will often talk about the term leading indicators of a business, an industry, or an educational institution. And 
I can honestly tell you one of the leading indicators of where my soul is at any given moment is how I'm sleeping. And I'll bet that that's true for you as well. How are you sleeping at night is usually one of the clearest indicators as to how you are trusting your heavenly Father. So we pray earnestly, we trust deeply, and finally, you go find your friends and you hang on. I absolutely love the detail. The detail of Peter showing up, knocking at the door, recognized, Rhoda doesn't even open the door, runs back in, tells them Peter's here, and they think that she's out of her mind, and then they think that Peter's dead, and God bless you, and that Peter is dead. This is a church, people. When somebody sneezes, of all places, this is the place where somebody ought to get blessed, is it not? What's wrong with you people? So... So Peter's standing outside, and they're like having this argument. It's Peter. It's not Peter. She's crazy. Who gave the servant that much wine? And Peter's standing outside just knocking. I'm knocking. And they get in, and they have this reunion. I love the detail of that story because it just, it smells of authenticity. It's just some of the quirkiness that happens amongst friendship. If you were making this story up, would you write it like that? No. That's not the stuff of legend. That's not the stuff of myth. That's the stories of when you're with fraternity brothers and you're reflecting on, hey, do you remember when? And then something ridiculous happened. Peter wasn't just rescued from prison. He was rescued for fellowship. And it's one of the most important things that we need desperately in our world. Author David Brooks says, when you consider the Church of Charleston, a nightclub in Orlando, a Pittsburgh synagogue, a Las Vegas hotel, that one of the common denominators of all of those things, and many others, but the one of the common denominators is an isolated man and that we live in an age of what he calls protracted loneliness. And it's reaching epidemic proportions in our society. And the problem with this protracted loneliness is that it leads to a hypervigilance where people become afraid of the very thing that they need the most, friendship community. And that this problem is not just out there in the world, that the fault line of our isolation lies within. He puts it this way. He says, most of us are part of the problem we complain about. Most of us have bought into a radical individualism that, as Tocqueville predicted, cuts each of us off. Most of us buy into a workaholic ethos that leaves us with little time for community. Most of us live in insular media and social bubbles that provide us with affirmations of our own moral superiority. Most of us hew to a code of privacy that leads us not to know our neighbors. Can I have an amen? amen. This is the situation that we find ourselves in. 
reading a fantastic book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And in this book, I learned something politically that I did not know before. It says that there was a shift in our politics in the 1980s. I had read about several of the shifts, but one of the shifts was a fundamental shift of the way that Congress actually interacts with one another. That up until the 1980s, that most people went to, you know, were elected to the Senate or the House, and, and that they spent most of their time in Washington and then came home occasionally. But starting in the 1980s, leadership started to say, you should spend most of your time at home. You should spend your time with your base and fundraising. And so they condensed the docket where what happens in Washington is that members of Congress helicopter in, they vote, and then they go back. And what's happened as a result is that they no longer form the friendships that they used to form, particularly across the aisle. Now the battle lines are drawn. There's us versus them. There's ally and there's enemy. And because there's no community, because there's no fellowship, because there is no friendship left in our legislation. And we wonder why we're not getting anything done the way that we used to. Do you remember Dave Peterson, what he used to say over and over again? Real ministry only happens at the speed of friendship. Daniel James Brown tells the true story of these boys. The University of Washington, unlikely underdog, overcoming every possible obstacle, crew team, rowing team. Did you know that rowing was as popular in attendance as baseball or football in the early part of the 20th century? And did you know that a 2,000 meter crew race is the physiological equivalent of two back-to-back full-court basketball games, but it's condensed to six minutes. This unlikely group of University of Washington students overcoming all of the power and the prestige and the pedigree of, of all of the Ivy League schools becomes the improbable team to go and to represent the United States at the 1936 Olympic Games in Nazi Germany and defeats the German favored crew team to bring hold that gold medal. What was the turning point? It wasn't actually in all of the training. The turning point happened in this place. They had just come off of a season where they didn't perform very well as a team. It was right after the Great Depression and they needed extra money, so many of the crew team went to go work in this place. This is the Grand Coulee Dam, and it was the largest masonry project in 4,000 years since a little thing called the Great Pyramids and they began to work on it. And in order to earn extra money, let's show this image here, you could earn extra money if you were willing to chisel while in a harness hanging on the side of the edge of the dam. And for a couple of them, what started to happen when you work in those conditions, you start to learn to trust one another 
you learn because you were hanging on the edge of life and death how to become a true friend, a true teammate. And so the author puts it this way, the trick would be to find which few of them had the potential for raw power, the nearly superhuman stamina, the indomitable willpower, and the intellectual capacity necessary to master the details of technique. And which of them, coupled improbably with all of those other qualities, had the most important one, the ability to disregard his own ambition, to throw his ego over the gunwales, to leave it swirling in the wake of his shell and to pull, not just for himself, not just for glory, but for the other boys in the boat. Is that how you live? Not just for yourself, not just for glory, but for the others who live in the big canoe that we call the church and the ark, which is God's own world. I wonder if you quietly came this morning thinking, yeah, you know, rescue, that was something that happened long ago, but it's not still going on today. I believe it is, and I believe that our call is to be ready, to be ready for what God might do in our life, not to manipulate it, not to engineer an outcome, but to be ready. And so I want to put this slide back up on the screen and just before you come to the table today, ask you in your own quietness of your own heart to ponder which of these three do you need to work on to be more ready? Praying earnestly, trusting deeply, or finding that kind of community in friends. Just take a moment an open-eyed prayer to listen to the tug of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we now come to your table, I pray that you will fill us with the fellowship of your great love. You will help us to learn how to lean on you and to cry out to you even in our moments of distress. Will you make us ready, God, ready for the unique escape opportunity that is your rescue? We were never meant to swim alone. This life is not an individual sport. And so will you encourage your people as they come to this Passover, this reminder that you not only rescued your people long ago in Egypt, that you not only provided rescue for us in the cross, but by your spirit, you are rescuing us still. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.